Good morning. I need to uh, let you know as we begin here, we have a problem. We've got a problem. And so uh, our problem is we've got too many people who want to study the Bible. Okay, it's not a problem. It's a challenge. And here's the challenge. So we're involved in World Bible School, and we have recently uh, had a series of web ads that have gone out, which means that we've kind of saturated the Internet and uh, people are seeing more contacts and connection back to Summers Avenue to sign up for World Bible School. So what that means is we've got a lot more people over the last couple of weeks who have signed up to want to study the Bible than we have World Bible School teachers. And so uh, this morning I want to mention that to you and plea that anybody can do this. Tom Cloniger can do this. Anybody can do this. But seriously, you remember a few months ago, you know, we, uh, we, we heard from Tom about World Bible School. And so uh, I just want to bring that up today. If, if You can do this from your home. You can do this from the library. You can do this from anywhere that you can access uh, the Internet. So on your phone, on your tablet, on a computer. And everything is funneled through World Bible School. It's their infrastructure that we use. And so... All they need is somebody willing to be that connection, to be that guiding voice through uh, the, the Internet as you correspond with these folks who are taking these lessons. And so, you know, they'll, they'll sign up and take the lesson. They'll start it. When they complete a lesson, you'll be notified. You look over it. World Bible School automatically, their system grades it so you know how well they did. If there's a question about how they answered something, you can interact with them and guide them a little bit more uh, scripturally on that. And so everything is about as simple as it could possibly be when you're dealing with uh, electronics and, and the World Wide Web and, and all of that stuff. So this morning, if you have any inkling of a desire to get involved in this wonderful ministry and tap into these folks who are begging, who are searching to study the Bible. Then I would encourage you to either talk to Tom, talk to Mark Phillips, talk to Ruth Busby, uh, talk to Barbara, uh, talk to me, talk to Oren, talk to Mike Penrod, talk to anybody who's been connected with World Bible School, and we will show you how quick and easy it is to get set up. But I want you to know that because of Summers Avenue and the effort that is going into getting the Word out there, we've got a lot more people who are wanting to study the Bible. And so uh, we'd love to have more people involved in that. So, we've talked over the last few years now about the, the, the imparting faith, passing faith on, passing faith down, uh, some regards, maybe passing faith up, generation to generation. So, we have focused a lot about intergenerational connection. And we've been intentional about that through activities that we've planned, through some of the way we've structured some of our gatherings together. We've been intentional through the language that we've been trying to use uh, because we know that that is near and dear to our hearts, your hearts. And so we've tried to find ways to, 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 to facilitate that. And so for this year, this calendar year, 2018, we are going to do something called Generation One because here's the idea. We talk about you know, the generations gone by. We talk about the generations yet to come. But the reality is there's one generation that you and I are a part of. And that's this one right now. That's this time and space when, when we are together 
in this life, doing life together here at Summers Avenue. And so we're going to begin this month on the second Sunday evening. We're going to come together in here, have a short devotional. Communion will be available for those who didn't have it. And then we're going to go out to the activity center and we're going to spend the remainder of our time at round tables. Because I want to know what, 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 was your, what were your steps to become a Christian? My children need to know what challenges you faced as you grew up in a Christian home or not in a Christian home. we got some young mothers who want to know here, how did you balance the obligations and responsibilities with family with wanting to be involved in your church family? And so we're going to, each month we're going to take a question and we're going to spend time together getting to know one another, each other's stories, each other's past, because one way that we can impart faith to the next generation is by letting them know what path our faith took to get to this one. And so, like I said, we're going to start that uh, next Sunday evening. So we'll, we'll meet in here at 5 o'clock, and then we will go do that. I just want to give you a heads up about that. We're excited about it. I think it's going to be fun because the more, the better we know each other, the more effective we can be together. And so we got, we got one shot at doing life together. And that's the time we have. And we don't know what that is. We have some folks who can't share in this with us because they have gone on. We have some folks who can't share in this with us because they are yet to come. But we have today and we have together. And so we're going to start that next week. So let me ask you this. How many of you recognize this board game? You recognize this game? You played this game before? My family loves to play board games. I do not. <laughs> I just don't. I say, I'm, there's nothing against board games. I don't hate them. I just don't like sitting there for the time. I would rather do anything else, honestly, than just sit around a table and play a game. Now, if you'll just let me sit there and visit while you play, that's fine. But it just has it's never been my thing. Nevertheless, I do like Monopoly. I do like this one. If this one comes up, I will play it. One of the most popular games in, in our culture, our history, for years has been, and there are literally hundreds of varieties of Monopoly. If you haven't been to Toys R Us lately, you don't know. <laughs> so you could go look on the shelf, and every conceivable angle of Monopoly they have come up with until the next one. And so It's almost as bad as Trivial Pursuit, all the varieties of Trivial Pursuit, which I also like, by the way. I do like Trivial Pursuit. So if you invite me for Monopoly or Trivial Pursuit, I am in. But you know the history behind the game? So this game came out in 1903. This lady named Elizabeth McGee created this game to demonstrate the evils of monopolization. The evils of one person controlling all of the wealth over everyone else. That was her purpose for inventing this game. The domination of a market by a single entity. Bad. And so this game, is, is, is the purpose is to drive everyone else to the point of bankruptcy so that one person comes out on top and they control all the money. They control the economy. And so it's interesting that in 1903, this woman created this game to teach the evils of acquiring more at the expense of others and just within just a few decades, the message of this game has changed dramatically. Because we love this game, don't we? It's not evil anymore. It's very fun. We want to control. We want to. And so it really it backfired in a way, I guess you could say. Because it's hard to market a game where the goal is for me to get less so that you can have more. 
That's not fun for me. I don't want to play that game, where the, a game where the goal is for me to have less. Who wants to play that game? Except golf. I do like golf. And so I think God loves golf. But anyway, games are by and far intended for the winner to get more and the loser to have less. That's kind of how most of them are set up. The winner gets more by taking from you. And I think the reason we like games that way is because in some ways we live life that way, even though we may not think about it and such, until Jesus comes along and He brings a whole new set of rules to us. And He asks, okay, is, is it really a win if your gain means someone else has to lose? Is that really what it means to win? And the main way we keep score in our culture and for centuries has been money. And so it's all about money. Jesus has a lot to say about money. And Dave Ramsey uses the illustration of money being like manure. If you spread it around, it grows. But if you leave it piled up, it stinks. And so Jesus talked more about money than anything else that He spoke about, except the kingdom of God. In fact, one-sixth of all the verses that record His Word are about money. And one-third of all the parables that he spoke on, were about money. And it's not because Jesus cared about making money. It's because Jesus cared about making disciples. It was about discipleship. And Jesus knew that money would be the chief battleground over which He and Satan would fight for the hearts of mankind. It's money. It's stuff. It's acquiring. Because you cannot serve God and money. God and stuff. And so in Luke's first letter, Luke being the one that wrote Acts that we've been kind of working our way through. In his first letter, Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, he writes this in chapter 12 and verse 34, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And notice he doesn't say where your heart is now is where you will put your treasure. He says where you put your treasure is where your heart's going to go. Your heart is going to follow your treasure. And so Jesus knows the pool of stuff. You can't separate discipleship from stewardship. You can't separate those. And so your heart goes where the money goes. And you need really only look at your expenses month to month, year to year, to see where you are being led. And so committing to being a disciple of Jesus transforms you from being a, 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 a born taker into a born again giver transforms us into being a giver. Jesus teaches a new kind of math to us. And so when you follow Jesus, generous is not what you do. Generous is who you are. And so we've looked at the early church in Acts and we've seen some pretty amazing things that have gone on here very quickly and very early from its inception. But perhaps the most amazing thing about these people is this wave of generosity that swept over them. And so in Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, we read, "...the group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one said that any of his possessions was his own, but everything was held in common. With great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on them all. For there was no one needy among them, because those who were owners of land or houses were selling them, and bringing the proceeds from the sales, and placing them at the apostles' feet. And the proceeds were distributed to each as anyone had need. So Joseph, a Levite, who was a native of Cyprus, called by the apostles Barnabas, which is translated as son of encouragement, 
sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and placed it at the apostles' feet. Now, does this sound a little bit familiar? If you back up in chapter 2 and verse 44, what do we read? All who believed were together and had everything in common, and they began what? Selling their property and their possessions and distributing the proceeds to everyone as they had need. And so that's what he's doing here. And isn't it significant that the very first two records that we have in Scripture about the church emphasize the same thing? It's generosity. The generosity of the people. And it wasn't the response to a command that they were doing this, but it was a response of hearts that had fallen in love with Jesus and hearts that were filled with God's Spirit. And so when we read how the church was in Acts, we've got to ask, okay, is this an exception? Or is this an example? Is this something that just you know happened then? Or is this the way things should be now? And so are we reading what the church used to be or what the church ought to be? Well, we've got to do the math. To see What fuels a culture of generosity? What fuels this? Well, first of all, it's community. Community fuels this culture of generosity. Pentecost saw the birth here of this new kind of community. And so we say blood is thicker than water, but here at Pentecost there was both. People were washed in the blood and people were birthed in the water of baptism. And so this new family is born and they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and to remembering the Lord's Supper, to prayers and to fellowship. And all four of those mattered. All four of those were integral to the church's explosion here, the growth here. And so you expect the church to be devoted to prayer, you expect a church to, to, to be talking the Bible. You expect them to take of the Lord's Supper. You expect them to pray. But notice also, we must be just as committed to real biblical fellowship, which will be tested because theirs was tested. And almost immediately, there were people who were in some pretty serious financial needs. And many of them, as you remember, during this time of the festival, had come from all different countries, from surrounding areas to the town here, to Jerusalem for Pentecost and Passover, which is why all those different languages were spoken there in the upper room on that Pentecost morning. And they only had enough money and supplies for just a few weeks. And so now they're Christians, though. Now 3,000 have been baptized. And we don't want to just run back home we need to hang around and find out more about what, what this new faith that we have just professed means. What does it mean to be Christian? And so they're hanging around now. But the more these resident believers hung around, the more they began to have real economic hardships. Because maybe you work for a man who finds out that you're a Christian, and so you lose your job. Or perhaps you're a Christian couple who owns a store. Now your neighbors quit shopping at your store because you profess Christ as the Messiah. And so now you lose your business that way. Or maybe you're a widow. You're a widow who's on the list down at the synagogue to receive monthly help. And so the priest finds out that you think Jesus is the great high priest. And so he takes his pencil and he scratches your name off that list to receive help. And so now what? Now what? So people start to have real needs and the church rallies. Hey, I'll sell a field. I've got some property I'll sell and, and we can use it and, and we can share that. And so this communal need overshadowed any personal differences that the people have because that's what church does. It's what we do. And so Summers Avenue has always been 
a congregation to step up to the needs of someone else, even if that person had no direct association with the congregation. And many of you have been coordinators of those resources. And some of us have been beneficiaries of those resources because the Christ-centered heart always produces an other-centered life. I was at Harding with a guy named Wade who had done some mission work in Malawi. And so he was telling one time of, of their, they had plans to go out and to, to preach and to teach around the area. And so in, in Malawi, the culture, if, if you had no shoes, it was considered disgraceful. But the fact was that many could not afford shoes. And so they just kind of overlooked it among themselves. But now the Americans were coming. Not only the Americans, but these holy men in their eyes and minds, these, these preachers were coming. And so how could we show up like this. And so he said they went to, to one gathering and there were two young men there. And each of them had one shoe, opposite shoe. One had a left shoe, one had a right shoe. And so he was intrigued by this. And he asked about it. And they said, well, they're brothers. And these brothers, one of the brothers had two shoes, but he couldn't imagine allowing his brother to show up in front of these Americans with no shoes. And so he shared a shoe with his brother. So somewhere along the way, Church became a noun. But in the Bible, church is not some place you go to. It's who you are. We are church. Church is people who do things for others, for one another and others, because of what God has done for us. And so you cannot subtract community and become a follower of Jesus. But you must also add another factor. And that's accountability. And so these first Christians did not just give willingly, but also visibly. There was a visible aspect to their giving. In verse 35, we read that they were placing these gifts at the apostles' feet, and the proceeds were distributed to each as anyone had need. Now, we can't imagine anyone finding out how much we give or don't give to the Lord. That's something we cover it up and hide it, and we try to be so secretive about it. Because that's between me and God, right? I mean, didn't Jesus say, don't let your right hand know what your left hand's doing? Yeah, but go back and look at that context because he was talking about bragging. He's talking about lording it over others. And so the fact is, the, the whole don't ask, don't tell, it didn't start in the military. It started, started in the North American church. And so, you know, it's, it's, don't get nervous. I'm not going too deep into this, but... I don't know that I'm saying anything really other than how are we supposed to impart faith? How are we supposed to spiritually guide each other? How are we supposed to be spiritually guided if we don't somehow talk about these things in more specific manners than just generalities? I'm just asking. How do we do that? Do we talk so little about something that Jesus talked so much about? And it's a statistical reality. I do not expect you to look at the details of this. I just want you to see the lines and the dramatic difference here. It's a statistical reality. The amount you give goes up with age. And that makes sense in our culture because usually you're more established. You're, you know, your career is more established. Your, your life patterns are more established. And so you have more position to be able to give more. And so typically you're in a period of higher earnings than you were when you were younger, more stable career, more stable life. But can we assume that a younger person is somehow just going to figure out what it means to be generous, how to be generous, if nobody is talking about being generous to them? How do we figure it out? Who's mentoring you 
to become a more generous person? And who are you mentoring? So where can we get together? Where can we talk about things like this that are so important to Jesus so perhaps we can follow Him better? Where can we do that if not in the church? Maybe we can even do that on a Sunday night sometime. This New Testament is full of very public examples of what generosity looks like. And Paul even told the, the church in Corinth about what had been going on in Macedonia. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse 1, we read, he says, Now we make known to you, brothers and sisters, the grace of God given to the churches of Macedonia, that during a severe ordeal of suffering, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in the wealth of their generosity. For I testify, they gave according to their means and beyond their means. They did so voluntarily, begging us with great earnestness for the blessing and fellowship of helping the saints. And so he's saying, you see here what it looks like. This is what it looks like to be generous. And he wasn't holding it over them. He was holding them up as an example, teaching them so they would understand what does it look like to be generous. He says, I want to bless you with this example. It's like a rooster that goes to the hen house and takes an ostrich egg and holds it up and says, I just want you all to see what they're doing down the street. You know, it's just an example. It's not holding it over them. And it's why the Holy Spirit called Barnabas out here in our Scriptures as an example of what generosity looks like. And every church needs Barnabas stories. We need Barnabas stories. We ought not be afraid or hesitant to talk about how we're being moved for the kingdom of God. Because that, in fact, mentors and influences and encourages others around us. And our movement in that can create these ripples that carry waves of influence across generations. But every church can expect Satan to somehow pervert that very same thing that is so powerful. Because it's so powerful. So there's this couple named Ananias and Sapphira, who noticed all this encouragement that Barnabas was getting, for sure. And they thought, hey, let us get some of that. We'll get some of that encouragement. Let's get our name out there. And so they sold a field. In chapter 5, in verse 1, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And he kept back for himself part of the proceeds with his wife's knowledge. He brought only part of it and placed it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds from the sale of the land? Before it was sold, did it not belong to you? And when it was sold, was the money not at your disposal? Have you thought up this deed in your heart? You have not lied to people, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he collapsed and he died. And great fear gripped all who heard about it. So he says, let's give them some money, but let's tell them we gave all the money. Let's make it look like something it's really not. So, you know, Barnabas, Barnabas got his name in the book of Acts. You know, let's get our name in there too. Well, guess what? They got their name in the book of Acts. See, the problem wasn't keeping some, but it was acting like they gave all. It was hypocrisy. And this is not about God killing people for not giving enough. Not at all. This is about God fighting for the purity of His church. The purity of this body of His Son because nothing leashes the church like hypocrisy. 
And God made clear right out of the gate that that should not be tolerated in the church. And so to our community and to our accountability, we have to add this authenticity, this realness. There's something about the power of money over us that can certainly bring out the phony in us. There were two rich elderly men on a golf course one day, this fancy resort. And so one day this this beautiful young girl walks up and she kisses one of the men on the cheek and says, I'm going to go back and get ready and I'll meet you at dinner. So she walked away and the other fellow said, Whoa, that's lovely young lady. Is that your granddaughter? And he said, no, that's my wife. And he was like, your wife? How old is she, like 26? And he said, well, yeah, actually. He said, well, how, how did you, how'd she marry you? He said, what would you do? Tell her you were 56? He said, yeah, I lied about my age. He said, but actually I told her I was 96. You think about it. For the love of money is the root of all evils. And some people in reaching for it have strayed from the faith and stabbed themselves with many pains. And so much of our anxiety and our selfishness and our phoniness and the, 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 the dishonesty and the pretension goes back to the toxic impact that money can have on our lives. And Jesus has no interest in the church becoming a stage for self-promotion. It is His name that is to be promoted. It's all about Christ. Which is why the church must be a place where people can be real, be authentic about their struggles and about their challenges. And the reason hypocrisy flourishes is because I am blind to the areas of my life where I need to grow. I'm blind to it. I don't see my weaknesses. If I had any, I might see them. Right? And that continues when I'm not in a community where people can speak honestly, speak to me about that which I cannot see. And the reason community often fails is because we get together and we just talk about surface stuff. We do it. We get lulled into it and caught up in it. And we don't get down to where we really struggle. When you get people devoted to fellowship and to community and being real with one another and practicing accountability and being authentic and talking and growing together, what you have is a Spirit-filled body. The Spirit of God who fills the body of His Son who is called to one hope and one united by one Lord and one faith and one baptism who has one God and one Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's what you have. And the church exploded in growth because of this, as the Lord added to their number daily, those who were being saved. And money cannot and will not buy happiness. But generosity sure can bring joy. Certainly brings joy. And God always does more with our kingdom investments than we could ever hope or imagine to do. And when generosity is prevalent in the church, the result is always through addition. Always through addition. You'll notice generosity, a generosity story in every section of Acts where there is growth. You have generosity followed by growth. That's no coincidence. In chapter 2 and verse 46, every day they continue to gather together by common consent in the temple courts, breaking bread from house to house, sharing their food with glad and humble hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number every day those being saved. 
And you get over into Acts chapter 6 and you see this problem of some widows in the church who are not getting the help that they need. And so what did the church do? The church organized and the church prayed and came up with a way to meet that need, to make sure that everyone was helped. And the very next message following this in chapter 6 and verse 7, the Word of God continued to spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Every time the church releases generosity, the church seems to grow. But then you have this right after. Ananias and Sapphira. This is a little strange. Chapter 5 and verse 13. None of the rest, Ananias and Sapphira dead on the ground, none of the rest dared to join them. But the people held them in high honor. And more and more believers in the Lord were added to their number. Crowds of both men and women. So this seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? But this was not a contradiction. What Luke is saying is that none of the others like Ananias and Sapphira dared to join them. People realized, hey, this isn't a place for us to go in and hoodwink people. There's something different about this place, about these people. And so nobody who thought that way dared to even join them. But so many other people said, I've never seen a community like this. And I want to be a part of that. And so the world lives by the rules of monopoly. And in the rules of monopolizing, everyone eventually loses. But there's something so attractive about a community that plays a new way, plays by new rules, where everybody wins. And we are that people. This is us. And so you have this tremendous capacity to be generous as the body of Christ, because in Christ we have our Father's generous Spirit. That's who we were created, recreated to be if we don't quench it. And that's our challenge. It's not what you have, it's how you use it. It's like a brick. A brick can be used to break a window, or a brick can be used to build something great like a hospital or an orphanage that that helps and saves so many people. It depends on the purpose for which it is allowed to be used. So my question this morning is, in whose hand have you placed yourself? For whose purpose are you allowing yourself to be used? For whose purpose have you committed your abilities and your earnings? By the strength of God's Spirit, the church exemplifies the love of Christ through her living and through her giving and her sharing and her service to others. And God is, God is the one who created social security. It's called the church. And it will never go bankrupt. It's never in danger of going bankrupt. And although it is the Lord who adds to the number of those being saved, Scripture shows us time and again how God has always had the intention that those being saved would add to the numbers. Seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and allowing God to do with us and through us more than we could ever hope or imagine. So this morning, in whose hand have you entrusted yourself? In whose hands have you entrusted your abilities, your earnings? It's no amazement that the church grew like it did from its inception here at Pentecost. It grew because they allowed the Spirit of God to lead them and to work through them and to unite them in one purpose. 
One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is in all and through all, over all. Our great God. So this morning, where are you being led? And who are you leading? Perhaps it's sin that's gotten a hold of you. Perhaps sin has monopolized your life. God calls you this morning to confess that, to repent, to ask His forgiveness so that He is ready to give that to you. And He does that and can do that through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you are not a Christian, if you have not been baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, why are you waiting? Why do you wait? Because until you give your life to Jesus Christ, God cannot unleash in you and through you the power of His Spirit to do His will in this world and in your life. And He cannot bless you with a promise of eternal life. So this morning, while we're together, if you have a need that we can meet, we're going to stand and sing a song for you to think about this message. Will you come as we stand and sing?